Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source and co-host of this podcast. I'm joined by Nicole Vulcan, our editor. We are powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. We are glad that you're taking some of your time to listen to us rap with the people in the community who are shaping it. Today, we are speaking with Roger Worthington. Roger Worthington lives to ride his mountain bike, play with his dog, Diggy, and drink beer with friends. He owns Worthy Brewing, also Indie Hops, a hop breeding company in the Valley, and a law firm in Los Angeles that special, specializes in asbestos cancer. He's the president of the Worthy Garden Club, a nonprofit whose mission is to help connect people to the natural world so we can become better stewards. Roger, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Good to be here. Uh, we were commenting earlier on your, what did you call it? Hop Hall paintings? Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of what we call Andy Warhops. <laughs> Warhops, that's it. Yeah. yeah. I love that. That's great. Um, well, you're known for being a lawyer as well as the owner of Worthy Brewing, which does a lot more than just brew beer. Um, could you start out by just maybe sharing some of the projects you're working on with Worthy and the Worthy Garden Club? Yeah, what's got us on the map really is our observatory. Uh, we are the first brewery really that I know of that's taken an interest in the night sky and trying to educate people about what's up there and how far away it is and how cold it is or hot it is or radioactive it is. And all of that, all those metrics are really designed to get us to appreciate the universe, but also just to realize how lucky we are to live on this beautiful little blue dot we call Earth. That's the number one thing. And then we have a organic uh, farm that we just launched uh, really about a month and a half ago. We have about four greenhouses and they're solar powered. And we have a full-time farmer and horticulturist and our executive director, Rick Martinson, is an ecologist who's a teacher at OSU and he's been instrumental in, in, in working with OSU to, to, to source the soil. And part of the education there is to is to teach people about soil, something I think a lot of us take for granted, but without which, you know, we wouldn't have food. So we're doing, those are our two main initiatives. We also have Operation Appleseed, which is our mission to plant over a million native tree species in the great state of Oregon, sort of targeting burn zones, but also uh, clear cuts and badly mismanaged forests. Roger, it seems a little ironic to be looking out into space to get a better appreciation of the earth we're standing on. Like, how, how do you make that connection? Well, you know, we, it's all about perspective, right? So if we just think about our own little world, we're all convinced because we're supposed to be optimistic that tomorrow's going to be better than today. And, uh, and where the earth exists for us and how can we possibly screw it up? And the only way to, I think, really appreciate, because, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, was all about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, pollution and famine and overpopulation and so on. And we were supposed to be scared to death, and that was supposed to motivate us to be, to be better stewards. But obviously, it hasn't really worked. So my thought was, well, let's do what Carl Sagan did and take a look at that blue dot and talk about how everything that's ever happened, it happened right there on that little blue dot that's sort of floating in this vast universe that none of us can quite possibly fathom. But maybe if we just put that in perspective, maybe we'll look at the earth as a lifeboat and we got to take better care of Mother Earth, don't we? I'm so interested in the fact that you kind of, you started everything, I mean, not your entire career, but 
you got the brewery as sort of like the the thing that brings the people together. And was that intentional? Like you Bend, Oregon, the brewery is the place that will attract others to come into, you know, be on board with the other missions that Worthy has around it? No, Nicole, you're spot on. I mean, some of my best ideas were launched when I was semi-inebriated. Um, <laughs> you got to learn how to let go. And but when we let go. I'm into publishing, Roger. So it's a, <laughs> yeah. You got to learn to let go of the libation, also some good friends who can stimulate your noggin. And so when we first designed and built Worthy Brewing, we talked about creating a place for epiphanies which sounds, you know, pretty highbrow and, and elitist and all that, but it's true. We want to have that eureka moment and started with, like most people love beer, but they don't really know why. They don't, they don't even know what a hop looks like. So let's just start with educating people about hops. So they associate worthy with, oh, that's where I learned what a hop cone looks like. It looks like a little hand grenade. That's where the oils are. And uh, this is how it's grown. And this is why the flavor profiles are different. So yeah, I like to create a place, a, a watering hole, if you will, where the animals can collect in the evening to get along. <laughs> you know, thinking about it, and um, and also ex exchange ideas. And so that's why we have a really good speaker series. Also, you know, a lot of times we bring in policy wonks and scientists, um, <clears throat> and even politicos. But the other day we had Coach Lanning for. A, or the head coach to the Oregon Ducks, and as a as a jock, I just love that. And to me, that epitomizes, <laughs> you know, why we built Worthy. It's, it's got a form for a little bit of for for everybody. So, mm -hmm. uh, about that. What do you think your employees say about you? You know, as a, as someone who's like got all these creative ideas going and coming up with new things, what's it like to but, work uh, for you, Roger? Um, you know, it's look at the thing about being creative is you have a very short patience level and, and your attention span is a little bit short because you, you have this fallacy in the brain that if you can conceive it, you can do it. And so in between conceiving it and doing it, there's a lot of opportunity to say, no, don't do it. Or, or why have you thought it through? And so as I've gotten a little bit more mature, I've listened to that voice that says, hit the brakes, you know, conserve your resources. Just because you can conceive it doesn't mean you have to do it. So my employees put up with me, let's face it, um, because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I like detail. I like a picture. I like a story. And um, unfortunately, when you have a restaurant business, there's a lot of turnover. So I thought I gave a speech once, but it turns out that speech was eight years ago. And we've had a thousand new faces since then. So you constantly have to remind people of what the mission is and what the story is and what a hop looks like and what it's for. You know, what's a hub server? It's a constant effort to educate my staff. I think has done a great job, our management in keeping the story fresh and alive. But sometimes it's tough. <laughs> you you mentioned Project Appleseed. Maybe talk a little bit more about its impact thus far, and uh, how many trees have you planted? Well, we're really lucky to be working with the United States Forest Service and some soil conservation groups and some other volunteer groups to uh, plant trees. And uh, again, I wanna focus on native trees <clears throat> and not just rot, plant rows of dug fir like a plantation, like a row crop. We put in 650,000 trees. Wow. And that's a big number, but we started this over three and a half years ago. And quite frankly, we'd lost time because of all the wildfires, especially in 2020. 
And then COVID hit and, you know, the United States Forest Service and our volunteers only have so much capacity when they get knocked down by these big twin back-to-back crises, it really hurt our efforts. But we have looked at all the forests and looked at all the burn zones. We've allocated the remaining money um, to, to particular forests. And, and now I got to tell you, I'm a little bit worried. I've learned more about planting trees. And one of the things that concerns me is the window for planting trees so they actually root and stick and germinate is getting narrow and narrow because of the drought and because of mm. climate change whereas mm-hmm. in the past you could plant you know several months a year now it's just only a few weeks and so because anyone can put a tree in the ground but the question is when you come back a year and a half later it's still going to be there and i personally have seen some of the efforts we've done out near Cougar reservoir six, seven months later, and all of them, most of them had lived, the ones who died 10% from, from uh, thirst because it's hot out there. There's holes in the forest where the sun comes beating down, desiccating the soil and, and sucking out the water. And even with sleeves and everything else we do to protect the tree with a little bit of shade and also from the deers, they still have trouble living without water. So where we got 650,000 in the ground, and we've got more to go. We were hoping to hit about 1.3 million trees. We, we uh, pledge a million dollars and we still have $300,000 remaining on our budget. And I can tell you a little bit more about what I really want to do with that when, uh, maybe a little later on in the podcast. So let me think, let me just um, see if I understand this. You have volunteers, but you also have folks from the Forest Service doing the planting? Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a united effort. Uh, we get volunteers at various nonprofits, and then the Forest Service um, is basically helping us uh, um, retrieve the trees, the saplings from nurseries. There's several big nurseries in Oregon that grow trees specifically for the Forest Service. And so we've been able to buy up those plants and then work with Forest Service and others to plant them in the ground. Got it. So it kind of lowers their budget of having to purchase trees to do this effort or maybe re or maybe in, intensifies the number that they would be otherwise planting. Yeah, I mean, believe it or not, the Forest Service doesn't have as much money as you might think they have um, to plant trees. And, and, and there's even concerns about the, uh, about the dearth of nurseries that are available to propagate these trees. And so one of the things we're doing now is we're going to buy a native nursery, a native plant nursery. So we're going to get involved in the business of growing out native shrubs, bushes, trees, flowers, and so on, targeting areas for restoration and rehab, and then doing it ourselves. So I've learned a lot. I, 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 I can I understand the need to delegate to pros when early on when you're an amateur, but I feel like we're at the level now where we know how to grow and plant and select the areas that we think need help. So, Do you imagine a retail component to that as well, Roger, where people might come and see the nursery or would it just be commercial grow? Aaron, you're, you're, such a forward, you're such a forward-facing person. I imagine there'll be a brewery in the front. And, he's writing oh, it down. No, Aaron, you're, not, you're nailing it. Uh, so Winter Creek Nursery has been around for 20 plus years mm-hmm. and they're really one of the only native plant nurseries in the Northwest. And they've got a great reputation. They do a lot of wonderful things for the community. And we're just gonna subsume that. We're the garden club's gonna purchase that. And since all the trees and shrubs 
are native and they're designed for restoration and we're not going to sell like fertilizers and miracle grow yeah. and all the other stuff it's not a strictly commercial operation it's going to be any revenue that we generate from that will be consistent with our nonprofit mission so all proceeds will go back into the program to to grow and plant trees yeah, great. That's super awesome. cool we're well, yeah um, obviously just the planting of new trees is an important endeavor, but there's, you're also passionate about preserving big trees. And we've talked a little bit about this. Um, it's come up recently with the thinning of the Deschutes National Forest near Phil's Trail. Um, as anyone who rides bikes knows about this trail system, um, can you share some of your involvement with that project and your thoughts on how it was handled? Yeah, Nicole, this is a big one. Um, so everyone loves the Phil's Trails Network, and as the owner of a brewer, we love that area. It's a watershed for water. We have a beautiful forest out there. We have great waterfalls and really, really good water. And this is kind of a tourist economy. Mountain biking is really important to our economy, so is hiking and just getting out in nature. We all love nature. We love shade. We love trees. We love wildlife. And what happened was a few months ago, I, I received a call uh, that there is a, a plan to to basically cut down um, these old growth, old older growth type trees, mature trees, we call them, that are greater than 21 inches in diameter, probably around 130 plus years old. And the, the thing about that warning was it gave an opportunity to the collaboration and the unit of people involved with working with the logging company and the Forest Service to identify these big trees. And once we identified them and figured out they're over 21, there should be an effort to save them because if the purpose of the, of the thinning is to suppress fire risk and also to restore health to the forest, then you don't wanna start with cutting down the most fire resilient trees out there, these big 21 plus inch ponderosas. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to cut down the older trees because they store the most carbon in the root system of the trees themselves. And they also absorb a lot of carbon. So and then went back and looked at the whole environmental impact statement and the rules of decision that was 10 plus years old on what the mission was and how to accomplish it and what the operational procedures were. And it was clear that even back then they were the, 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 the people who wrote those, those, those drafts talked about the importance of preserving ponderosas. So as a lawyer, I'm looking at the actual intention, the rules, the letter of the law, the spirit, and I'm looking at what they're doing and said, this doesn't mesh because who in their right mind would want to cut down these big trees, especially when if the effort is fire suppression. So a, a nonprofit group uh, raised, blew the whistle. And what then happened was astonishing to me. Once the whistle's blown, now the collaboration, the Forest Service and all the stakeholders can get together and say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. Let's preserve those trees. Sounds simple, right? But what I got surprised me. Instead of, yeah, you're right, let's save those. Those are misparked. That was a mistake. Doesn't make any sense. Let's save them. Instead, it was, let's blame the whistleblower. And what does that mean? Well, let's, let's, let's accuse the whistleblower of engaging in anti-inflammatory rhetoric that somehow then led to vandalism. This is when I got involved. I go, wait a minute. You're claiming now that there is vandalism on some logging machinery out there in the forest during the winter. Yes. So I called the, the police, the sheriff's department. I said, what's the nature of this vandalism charge? Because I'm thinking, what? Someone must have burned something, blown something up, or put sugar in a tank. And what the officer James told me and this is after a story had been published in some newspapers 
quoting the logging company who said that the, uh, the vandalism was a danger to their equipment, was a danger to the employees and a danger to the environment. Again, it painted a picture of environmentalists as being eco-rabid, over-emotional and crazy, right? And, and so I called the sheriff, he said, well, I said, What's, what was the, uh, the nature of this um, vandalism? Well, an unidentified liquid was on the cab of a logging, of a, of a diesel tractor. Unidentified liquid, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. Could it be coffee? Could it be urine? Could it be Coke, beer? Could it be whatever? Nothing. He was not, the report that he read from did not indicate there is any serious effort to destroy property or endanger lives. In fact, it was the opposite. It was a superficial thing. And, and look, I don't condone vandalism. I mean, hell no, I don't like it. I've seen it happen to my stuff and I don't like it. No, and I don't condone it. Well, I'm, the, the liquid on the hood of a car isn't really vandalism, is it? I don't know. How do they, what did they do I have to get some mitigation to wash it off? Well, you're on it, Aaron. I was like, well, what does that mean? He said, well, it's a class three misdemeanor at most. It's superficial. The, there might have been, it was inside the cab of a, of, a, of a tractor, a big dozer, which is exposed. And there's homeless people. And who, who knows who did it? Yeah. But the fact is, this, this, the, the sheriff did not open a file. Did not, uh, there's no claim filed. There's no evidence of any perpetrators. And the case was closed. And the only reason why the logging company called, theoretically, and giving him the benefit of the doubt, was to report something in case there was a more serious effort down the road and they need to notify their insurance companies. But part of me thinks that was covered. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, at about that time, there was an effort by one of the members of the collaboration to simply buy out the trees. Okay, if you got 21 or 30 trees over 21 inches, why don't we just buy them out from the logging con contractor? Because at this point, I'm going, beautiful idea, save the trees, makes no sense, let the logging company make their, make their profit, because that's obviously very important to them. And that way, we save grace. Well, during those negotiations, this alleged vandalism happened and that apparently shut down the negotiations according to phil chang and mayor russell that determinated the negotiations so what they did our leaders our public trustees and our stewards of the land they decided that that contract with the logging company was carved in stone and sacred and it trumped any effort to spare those old growth or older growth trees now that to me is what got me a little bit fired up because we need more than ever our forest stewards to protect those old growth, especially during a climbing emergency. This ain't going away. We're at 1.1 centigrees uh, above normal and we have 1.5, that's only 0.4 to go before bad stuff starts happening, even more so than now. So I was appalled that our leaders called out the whistleblowers for doing a public service to save trees. And it just astonishes me that in 2022, this would happen. So that was a kind of a, and the big picture is this is gonna happen again and again. The Infrastructure Act allocated billions of dollars to fire suppression and forest thinning projects, restoration projects. And they're ceding a lot of authority to these collaboration groups, which Phil Chang is, is a proud father of, but those things can go south and they can be dominated by industry. And they can make decisions in faraway places where no one's watching that actually give cover to logging companies to tear down and take down the big trees because that's where the money is. So with all the money coming in from the federal government and new projects out there, like the, like the Green Ridge and Metolius and others here, especially in Eastern Oregon, I'm very concerned that with, without oversight, without actually measuring trees, 
without actually an effort to mark trees that should be thinned, if any, that there's going to be more abuse. And um, that worries me. Well, Roger, for this, sorry, go ahead, Aaron. When we were following the story, I mean, one thing that jumped out to me as the process was going forward is it just didn't seem like there was a mechanism to air the issues, you know, I mean, it kept going like it was moving very fast. And, you know, like you mentioned, at the point where you're kind of going to the county and the city ad hoc with a problem, um, that's not the best way to do it, especially if you're in a situation where you got something that could recur again in the future. And and I got to say, like, just listening to this, if I'm if I don't want to be too pessimistic, but if I'm a guy with millions of dollars worth of lumber there, I'll throw coffee on my dash and call it whatever I want to call it. You know, if there's no investigation behind it, I mean, I got to know what that liquid is at a minimum. I, I, so, yeah, there's my pessimistic podcast take for you. So. Well, it's not that pessimistic. I mean, that's exactly the point. No one condones vandalism, but don't use that or, or enhance or embellish or fabricate just to excoriate environmentalists. We should embrace what they did. They're saving trees, which saves our forest, which reduces fire risk. So it, it made no sense. It made no sense. And I was appalled because the tone of the calls I got from Mayor Russell and some of the emails are from Chang were stand down, your people. for the fact that the logging company was disgruntled, they were peeved, they stopped negotiating. And you know what we're talking about? We're talking about $4,000, $4,000. And so one of the offers to buy those 30 plus trees was 5,000, we'll give you 5,000 bucks, you get your money, leave the trees in the ground. And the, the, the logging company ceased negotiations, which really, really worries me because the federal government owns that property on our behalf of our stewards. They delegated the responsibility on whether to cut those trees to the logging company. That's privatization at its most egregious level. This was an opportunity for the, for the collaboration and the Forest Service to protect those trees. They abandoned their duty. They left their post. And it's free. Roger, what do you think the motivation was to not take the money? I mean, if it's 4,000 bucks, I mean, was it just pride? Like we're loggers or, you know, we're in the, we're in the motion. We got to do what's right. Keep, keep the, keep the wheels moving. Well, the cynical side of me, which seems to be getting bigger every day, apologies in advance, is that they just wanted the money. I mean, there's more money, but and then secondly, the precedent, yeah. But if this, if, if we were to do this, then we would be subject to shutting down our operations right. all over the place with millions of dollars coming in. They want to cut and run. They want to move fast and pile them up high and cart them out and turn them to pulp and send them to J Japan and China. <laughs> so much for job creation in the great state of Oregon. Most of those logs are going overseas. So it does, uh, it does baffle me. And I, and I am, I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, very optimistic about this this project because we're supposed to trust those people, and they instead of endearing themselves to us, showing us that they can collaborate and they can move nimbly and they can protect the trees and they can live up to the spirit and letter of the contract, 
They abandon all that. And I got to tell you, I've been calling Merkley and Wyden and everybody and asking for a copy of the contract and nobody will give it to me. I asked Mayor Russell Chang, give me the contract because before they were cut down, I was interested in filing a temporary restraining order. But it happened so fast. Boom, done. And we keep saying 21 or 30 trees. We don't even know that. A member, uh, someone like you and me just walked out there in March and saw these big trees that were marked for execution and said, wait a minute, this makes no sense. It was totally spontaneous and serendipitous and random that we even found out those trees, which should tell you that the, the government is not actually surveying, they're not overseeing, they're not monitoring, they're not, they're not second guessing, they're not protecting the forest. So why are we supposed yeah. to try? I mean, that makes me think of, you know, we know that something like roughly 50% of the state is, is federally owned. And, you know, there's been the situations in China hat where we have individuals that, um, you know, maybe doing things that others don't agree with. And it's been really tough to mitigate that situation too, because it's on federal land. And I'm just curious about, you know, what are the mechanisms to, to assert our, our will over federal property. Well, Nicole, one of the things we need to do, and it's really, to me, un, unambiguous, is we need to bring back the east side screens. It's a federal rule for years that protected trees, especially ponderosas, over 21 inch in diameter. <clears throat> and then on his way out, President Trump abolished that rule to the delight of the timber industry. And that rule, it provides a very clear cut metric that forest tree markers have to abide by. If it's greater than 21, leave it be, leave it in the ground, leave it where Jesus is playing it. But instead they're using discretion and discretion unfortunately in the hands of unscrupulous folks uh, gets abused. And it's really hard to show abuse of discretion because agencies are entitled to all the difference in the world because courts don't want to get involved in second guessing the experts. So the thing we could do to protect trees all over is restore the east side screens to protect big trees, big mature trees over 21 inches. And that, so it was a rule that President Trump um, rescinded. So in theory, someone else could go and, and say, it's back on the table. Absolutely. And in fact, there's been, we've all written letters to, to Senators Wyden and Merkley and an entire Oregon congressional delegation asking them to bring back the screens and, and, and the movement on that has been pretty slow. And so I understand there's some groups that are, that are seriously considering filing a lawsuit here soon to earn the east side screen to protect those big trees. And again, everything should be prefaced by we're in a climate emergency. And one of the best ways to draw down atmospheric carbon and store it is through trees. Big trees store lots of carbon. We've all seen the number 3% of the old growth in Oregon store 43% of the carbon. And so why are we even thinking about cutting down these older trees, whether they're 600 year old ponderosas, 130 year old ponderosas? Because mm -hmm. the, the best way to, to draw down carbon, the best way to keep it in the ground is to leave those trees, leave them be. The act of thinning themselves, that generates all types of carbon emissions, Cut, cutting the roads through, cutting them down, hauling them out. 
uh, burning and slagging, take them to mills, and of course mills do their thing, and then you end up with processed wood that ends up at, at IKEA or Home Depot. The amount of carbon that's lost in the air from the milling and, and logging and transportation process makes logging itself as big or bigger in terms of a source of carbon emissions than the fossil fuel industry. So thinning, I mean, thinning doesn't, should not mean clear cutting. It, mean, it means leave some trees up, be selective. And there may be some great arguments for thinning, but fire suppression to me, we should, all the science shows that we should be cutting, we should be suppressing kindling and, and uh, combustible products from the home out. So within, within, in the boundaries of your home, out under, uh, uh, you know, 200 meters or 100 meters, that's where you should work on your fire suppression. Not eight miles away from where I live, up there at Phil's Trail. Yeah, I mean, and you brought up an important point that these are trees that are resistant to fire. You know, if you go to the forest, you see these big trees that have had gone through many fires and have char on them and they're still, you know, plugging away. Um, so be, as we as we wrap up here, I know um, you you mentioned to me that there's some projects going on where thinning is going to happen in the future. Um, I'm curious what we can learn from the Phil's Trail situation to help inform and do better going forward as a community or um, or even broader well, as a state, as a region. I think the community should be proud of itself. As soon as uh, Oregon Wild and others, Oregon Central Oregon Land Watch, alerted the people about what was going on, Oregon Bendites started signing petitions right and left. And, and all, but the cutting was done under cover of darkness. I mean, so we are doing the right thing. We are calling out, we are skeptical in a healthy way. We, we don't just trust the government to do what they want. In fact, the biggest take home for me is when I got involved with Operation Appleseed and put out that, that pledge of a million and we were working along, I'd always ask them, could you please make sure there's a conservation easement so these trees aren't later clear cut by the logging companies? Cause I'll turn over in my grave. And they refuse to do it. And I started thinking, well, what the hell? So here's the thing. I have $300,000 left on my budget. I've, I've let the United States Forest Service know that I'm going to pull that out from, from planting trees. And it's instead diverted toward saving trees greater than 21 inches. If you're just going to go out there and allow logging companies to trim those down, that's appalling to me and antithetical to science and forest management. I would rather take my money and buy those trees for the public. So those are the kind of things you can do. Like, if you have resources, let the government know. Thou should leave those trees in the ground during a climate emergency. Let them grow. And the people just need to, it sounds trite, but letters to the editor, writing emails to the Forest Service, uh, to politicians, just two or three sentences, quoting the Lorax. Unless somebody like you cares a whole awful lot, then it's not going to change. It's not. Um, Things like that matter. People hear that and it works. Have you read the overstory? Oh yeah. So, overstory, you know, yeah. if you want to read a short one, the Lorax, if you want to like spend like weeks reading something that, you know, that's my recommendation. That book is life-changing in my, in my opinion. It is. And, and so one of the characters is Susan, is actually based on Suzanne Samard mm -hmm. from Columbia and also went to Oregon State. She wrote a book just recently, Finding the Mother Tree. I strongly urge your, your listeners to, to read that. It's beautifully written, beautifully written. 
inspired. The mother tree, you said? The mother tree, Suzanne Samard. She's actually the character in the Over story who talks about trees talking to each other. Yeah. That's, so Roger, you, you've got to, even in the face of all this, one of the things that <clears throat> strikes me in talking with you is um, you seem to still have a lot of energy for it. You've got a lot of things going on in this area. You, I, I won't call you an optimist, but um, you know, what advice do you have for people who, <clears throat> I mean, there's just a lot of, you know, I think that um, maybe it's that we have just more data or we're more informed, but there's just a lot of bad news on the environmental front. And uh, what do you say to people to give them a little slice of that, you know, Roger Worthington push? Well, it's like, you know, think globally, uh, act locally. You, you have to, when I think about what you just asked, Aaron, I think about Voltaire and Candide. In the end, you got to just cultivate your garden. Look, if you try to solve the world's problems, it'll drive you insane. You'll literally go, you'll freak out. But you can build a nice little restaurant and brewery. You can grow an organic farm. You tr can try to grow your own food. You can try to compost. You can try to recycle and repurpose your waste stream. Those are the things we can do on a small scale. So if people did that collectively, we could actually make a dent. So I think all of us have, all of us are contributors to greenhouse gases. We all emit them in with the food we eat and how much we eat, where we go, how we get there. We're all contributors. So we can all, we can all decide to try to limit, limit our carbon footprint. Each of us can do that. Yeah. And I think you're, you know, the education around knowing that a 21 inch tree is sort of the magic number to say those are really important. Well, I've got a 21 inch tree in my backyard. Now I know that's not where I'm going to put the shed next year, you know, that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, that's it. You're talking about like in, in, inside a, a city, like in the city. Yeah. Of uh, what are we going to do with older trees? And, you know, there's, there it gets interesting because we want the older trees, but there's a public safety issue. If the tree looks like it's starting to lean or branches, you have to trim those trees. You know, obviously the lower branches can catch fires so when you trim those out. And so that's an individual's decision that a lot of people are going to have to make is, do I want to keep that tree, even if it kind of starts to lean and get an expert to address the, the risk factors. But I think the bigger issue is here in Bend, how much more growth are we going to tolerate? Are we going to keep, you know, down in Austin, Texas, they're trying to go vertical because they've gone as far as they can. Here, we're still talking about developing between here and Sun and, uh, and sisters. And that's a lot of forest out there that's, that's sucking carbon from the air. It's our sink. It's a nature's best and most effective carbon sink. It's just having those forests up. So do we really want to mow them down in these, you know, tree farm establishments out here where you get to have a couple of, I mean, I'm, there's a, there's a lot you can get, you can spin out of control with your pessimism, but mm -hmm. Um, we do need to we do need to educate the people about the importance of trees as our greatest bulwark against global warming. Leave them in the ground. Leave them where Jesus is flying it. it, it adopt what the Hippocratic Oath of Doctors use. First, do no harm. When you're out there thinning, come on, guys. Don't just cut everything down. Be conservative. Be a conservationist. Don't do harm. Sometimes do nothing. Why do we love wilderness areas? Because we haven't gone in there and built them out. Sometimes you got to just leave it be. And that's going to help biodiversity. It's going to help habitat. It's going to help water filtration. The laundry list of virtues from leaving the forest as it is, is, is a mile long.
So Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you for being on the podcast today um, and educating us on some important topics. Um, it's been really fun. Well, it has been fun. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's, it's been delightful. Earth first, beer second, Roger. <laughs> right on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Reverence and gratitude. How do we obtain good cheer despite all the the nasty stuff out there. You guys are doing a great job. I love the source. Thank you, Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Have All right. a good one. See ya. Bye-bye.